it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hey, this is Jason Chaffetz. I'm actually filling in for Brian. Honored to do so. There's so much happening. Glad you could join us. We're going to have a lot of fun. we got Sean Duffy uh, holding for us on the line. But before I do that, hey, we just have to welcome uh, 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 Sedalia is, uh, is joining us. Sedalia's news leader there in Missouri, AM 1050 KSIS. Thanks for joining the Kilmeade uh, crew and and being one of the affiliates there in the, the wonderful state of Missouri. I, my mom was actually born in St. Joseph, Missouri, so I got some ties out there. And uh, thanks for joining us and uh, broadcasting the Brian Kilmeade show uh, out there in Sedalia. So uh, glad we're doing that. And uh, lots happening in the news, so I don't want to mess around. I want to bring in my former colleague, somebody I served with in the United States Congress, uh, Sean Duffy was the congressman from Wisconsin. He's a Fox News contributor. He's also a co-author of the book All American Christmas, which was way up there in the New York Times. I think he was number one. So, Sean Duffy, thanks for joining us this morning. Hey, Jason. It's great to be with you. i got to tell you, I don't know if you have this. When you mention a state, I always think of the members of Congress from that state. So I'm like, oh, Billy Long or... Uh, Jason Smith, <laughs> it's this old habit we have of who serves in that state. So, yes, uh, or Vicki Artsler. Yes, exactly. And yeah, that's exactly. kind of the way you view the whole state is you, you just kind of think of a delegation and, and who are the members from that state, like Jason Smith, like you said. Uh, that's funny. I um, <clears throat> When I think of Wisconsin, when I think of lumberjacking, I think only of you. So glad, uh, glad you're joining us. Um, hey, I want to get your take on Russia. And particularly this story coming out that Russia is asking China for help. Um, I want to play uh, Jake uh, Sullivan. He was on CNN. Uh, let's play clip 17. Then I want to get your response. Thoughts on that. Would you sanction China if they did help out Russia? I'm not going to sit here <coughs> publicly and, and brandish threats. But what I will tell you is that we are communicating directly, privately to Beijing that there will absolutely be consequences for uh, large-scale sanctions, evasion efforts, or support uh, to Russia to backfill them. We will not allow that to go forward and allow there to be a, a lifeline to Russia from these economic sanctions from any country anywhere in the world. And what's interesting, uh, Sean, is that supposedly, I believe Jake Sullivan is meeting with, the, with China's top diplomat today, but the idea of bringing uh, China into this fight and engaged and involved and supportive in any way, shape, or form, uh, that can't be good. Well, a couple of thoughts on that. Number one is, obviously, this is American intelligence that must have picked up this conversation or this request from the Russians to the Chinese. And instead of holding that close to the vest, uh, the Biden administration puts it out there for the world to see. And again, I don't disagree with that move. But is this a way to actually embarrass the Russians, to tell the world how poorly it's going for them in Ukraine, that they actually have to ask the Chinese for assistance? 
that Russia now is viewed as the younger brother of the greater China. It's, this is an, an embarrassing ask for the world to know about. It was probably meant to be done in private, uh, but now American intelligence has exposed it. So one, I think this is incredibly embarrassing for Putin. But the second thought I have, Jason, is it brings me back to Donald Trump. President Trump was like, listen, we got to put America first. Um, China's not our ally. China's not our friend. We, wait, we make way too much stuff in China. We got to get out. We got we, we to gotta bring our manufacturing back home. But if not home to America, go to India, go to Vietnam, go somewhere else, anywhere but China. Um, and it seems like Joe Biden, whether it was in the State of the Union address, which was stolen right out of the playbook of Donald Trump, he's going to secure the borders and he's going to fund the police and we're going right, to make right. things in America again. But here again, he's stuck going, huh, President Trump was probably right to go, China is the greatest threat we face in this country. And if we rely on China, like Russia relies on the rest of the world for everything, you see the power that Russia's given the West whether it's through banking, through their credit card transactions, um, they, we basically are able to shut them down because they rely on us. We should think about that as well. If, if we have some conflict with China, China can shut us down because we get everything from China. We should see over the horizon right now and go, get out, get out now. Yeah, that, that message, um, for those that have just not heeded it, uh, it's just been, hey, let's take the cheap labor. Hey, let's take the inexpensive goods. Um, but also our national debt. I mean, it makes it, uh, you know, we're so beholden to the Chinese uh, buying our national debt and how much debt they hold. Um, but let's, let's, go back to, let's go back to Putin and, and the way things are going because – I mean, by most accounts, things are not going as smoothly as Russia may have uh, predicted and wanted them to do to go, and that the, everything was just going to fall like dominoes um, pretty quickly. But it's also the fog of war. It's also difficult to tell what was what is actually going uh, on. But let's listen to the President Zelensky cut two in his take. If they kill all of us, then they will enter Kyiv. If this is the goal, then let them enter. But they will end up living alone on this land, certainly without us. They will not find friends among us. I mean, this is a country of, what, 45 million people or so. And, I mean, Ukrainians are showing to be a very tough lot who are not just going to cede and roll over and let the Russians come in and take over their land. And, and Putin might have misread the, the Ukrainians when he took Crimea. He basically took it without much of a fight. He basically annexed it, and Ukraine didn't do much about it. This is completely different. This is their liberty, their freedom. Um, we'll call them a democracy, but their democracy is at stake. They would be a subjected state of Russia, and they're not going to stand for it. And I get, I'm, I'm incredibly um, impressed with how well they fought. They're willing to give their life and their treasure yeah, you know, it's, Again, I don't think that Putin. Oh, go ahead. Well, I, it's interesting, though, that supposedly, you know, the U.S. is feeling like, oh, my goodness. Well, you know, Russia might come to the negotiating table. Uh, I was on the panel for Fox News Sunday, and one of the guests there that Brett Baer interviewed was Wendy Sherman uh, from the State Department. Let's listen to cut four and her take on Russia. And the second is to put enormous pressure on Vladimir Putin to try to change his calculus, to end this war, to get a ceasefire in the first instance, to get humanitarian corridors, and to end this invasion. 
that pressure is beginning to have some effect. We are seeing some signs of a willingness to have real serious negotiations. But I have to say, as your reporter said, uh, so far, it appears that Vladimir Putin is intent on destroying Ukraine. We need to help Ukrainians in every way we can. So my question, Sean Duffy, is is about negotiations, because we've we've kind of seen this before. Well, I was in Congress. I went to Georgia, where Russia had come in and basically took over 25 percent of the state of Georgia and uh, not Atlanta, Georgia, but Georgia there in, in their in their neighborhood. And um, and then they signed some documents saying that they would withdraw and then they never withdrew. I mean, that's the concern is that they're just going to hoodwink everybody saying, oh, lay down your arms. Let's be quiet. You know, don't worry about it. We'll get out of here. And then they never leave. Right. Well, they're not known for honesty, right, Jason? You know, we, they, they, they lie, right. they cheat, and they steal. We should expect that. Um, but, in, to, but to the clip you played, I think um, the sanctions are one thing, but do the sanctions really impact Putin himself? Not really. They're impacting the people in Russia significantly. Maybe some of the oligarchs, could, which could be a threat to Putin's leadership in Russia. I think, I think Putin understands strength. Putin understands that um, if, if Ukraine continues to fight back, if we arm Ukraine with missiles, um, if they get the MiGs, if they're able to fight back and inflict major damage on Putin, he understands that. And then once you get Putin to that point, you, gotta, you, gotta, you have to allow him to save face. And anything that we've done, we know this from politics, even though you might have beat someone in a negotiation, you have to let them save face and claim a victory, especially when you have a guy who has nuclear weapons pointed at the U.S., you let him save face. But that, that's not going to happen until there's a, a shift in the war, that actually there's a the, – the, the Ukraine stops the advancement of the Russians. The, the Russians, though it's taking longer, they continue, to, they continue to take territory. They continue to advance. They continue to effectuate their mission on Ukraine. So that has to stop, and they have to get rolled back before I think Putin comes to the table. And to let that happen, we actually have to arm the Ukrainians. And it goes back to this other point that I know you've made numerous times. Why didn't Joe Biden do this over the last year, right? And, and my wife, Rachel, made this point earlier. Liberals are like, oh, no, you know, Donald Trump threatened to take away some of uh, the, the armaments he was giving to the Ukrainians if they didn't come clean on Hunter Biden. Well, the point behind that is he could take armaments away because he was actually giving weapons to Ukraine. That's right. That's he could right. take weapons away if he was giving them to them, right? Uh, Joe Biden gave $120 million over the course of this presidency. Uh, 20 million last summer, 100 million in December, or I think it was November, when the Russians, you know, were stacking their troops at the Ukrainian border. Why, you know, why wasn't a couple billion dollars spent? Again, sending them the arms to make sure they could defend themselves. That might have made Putin reconsider whether he invades or not. Yeah, I, I don't understand why this wasn't done well in advance, making sure that they had what is proving to be a very effective weapon in those stingers. Uh, and other types of weapons. And the sanctions, I thought, were an absolute joke because they kept saying, oh, the sanctions, sanctions, sanctions are going to be a deterrent, only to have Joe Biden say, well, they were not, nobody seriously thought that those sanctions would ever be a deterrent. And then how is it that we still have sanctions in our, in our repertoire that we could actually go out and use? Why are we unleashing every single sanction we can possibly do uh, particularly as it relates to American energy. I just don't understand that. I, I don't understand that either, but I would tell you what, I, I'm very concerned about the sanctions that we're using, that we've kicked Russia out of SWIFT, 
everyone in the world is able to use SWIFT for the most part. Um, and once you kick out Russia, you have other countries, whether it's China, um, other rogue nations that uh, might not want to be subject to the West. You're going to see an alternate system set up of people who don't want to be part of SWIFT because that gives too much power to the West. That can threaten the reserve, cur reserve currency status of the dollar. Everyone trades in dollars right now. If you're going between Brazil and, and Sweden, they don't do that uh, transaction in their home currencies. They do it in dollars. So there's a demand for dollars. If they trade those dollars in, there's you know trillions of them out there. You tank our currency and you tank our economy. This, is, this could be cataclysmic for the country, which doesn't make sense why we would play that card, I think, when it has such a potential downdraft for, uh, for the American dollar and the American economy. And I, that's, I, I may be a minority view on that, Jason, but uh, when you have a risk to the U.S. Uh, that says, that, that's so great from a reserve currency status that could be lost, I don't think it was worth playing that card. And what impact does it really have on the Russians? I don't know, not, not a whole lot. I think, to your point, energy is the key. Produce American energy, drive down the cost, take money out of Putin's pocket. Yeah, you bring a, big, a, a very good point about SWIFT because I think the Chinese and the Russians do share a goal, and that is to get the world economy away from the dollar. Everything is pegged to the dollar, um, but if they could create, uh, uh, because of necessity, a drive towards something else that they could be more in control of and not to allow the United States to be a leader, I think that is a, that is a very real threat to us. But I, the energy sector, I mean, how many times are we going to have to talk about the need to develop, you know, and be energy self-sufficient, but also be able to be the backstop for Europe so that they can buy a viable, um, you know, energy product from the United States without having to be, hold, be, be held into Russia? And I think you, you and I were both in Congress together when we passed the bill, it was right before you left, to allow exports of LNG. We started to build terminals in the southern part of the country so we could export LNG to places like Germany who actually need it. Um, but I don't think, Jason, that the Democrats, that the Green New Deal wing of the Democrat Party, which is the most vocal and most powerful wing of their party, are, are ever going to come back around to believing that we need to produce energy in America. They would rather outsource that to countries that hate us, that, that produce their energy with no rules or regulations. Right. So they do it in a more dirty fashion. Um, all, of, all of this is disastrous for the economy, but also for the environment. And so the only way they get the message is through elections. And you have one coming up in November. I think Democrats were going to have a big loss. I thought that you know, four months ago. Today, I think it's going to be even greater. When I came in, Republicans picked up, what, 64 seats that gave you right, the majority right. you, were, you got to Congress before me. I think you know, Republicans are going to pick up, you know, 35 seats, which Democrats only have, a what, a five-seat majority right now. So a 35-seat pickup means Republicans have a 30-seat majority. That is massive. It is massive, and energy will be a major driver in those decisions. Uh, former Congressman from Wisconsin, Sean Duffy, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. We do appreciate it. Great talk, right, Jason. Have a great day. Stay with us. We'll be back with more of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. 
Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. We also see once again the fact that they lack a real non-commissioned officer corps and not much initiative at the lower levels either. In fact, one reason that we're seeing senior officers killed fairly regularly is presumably because they're getting out of their vehicles, having to go forward and find out, you know, why have you guys stopped? Why aren't you dispersing off the road? Why are we parked in the open? Uh, And so forth. So... Uh, really quite an underwhelming performance. Uh, they have failed to integrate their ground uh, maneuver and their air assets, right. something we thought they would use to great effect. That's really the essence of Blitzkrieg going all the way back to, say, 1939. Uh, and they haven't been able to achieve combined arms effects. In other words, using armor together with infantry, with engineers, with indirect fire, mortars, artillery, uh, drones, and all the rest of that. You just have not seen any... Uh, of those kinds of uh, operations. That was uh, General David Petraeus. He was on with Brian Kilmeade on One Nation uh, over the weekend. Uh, General Petraeus, you can say a lot of things about him, but he certainly has a lot of experience and understanding of military, military tactics, and being uh, underwhelmed by what's going on in Russia. Now, make no mistake, these Russians are ruthless. Uh, They're using some weapons that... uh, boy, a lot of people think are just out of bounds. The human toll that they've been taking, uh, seeing that uh, attack on a hospital, uh, other types of attacks. Uh, don't Let's not ever sell Russia short in their tenacity uh, and how vile they can be in the, 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 the world of war. Um, I think there's a tendency to say, wow, okay, there's a lot of great strength from the Ukrainians. Uh, Ukraine is a big-sized country. There is a lot of territory to cover. We hope and pray, I guess, that uh, that uh, the Ukrainians are able to fight back street by street and road by road and neighborhood by neighborhood. But the brutality of war, the millions of people that are having to be displaced, that are leaving their homes to to have to take whatever you have. Imagine doing that. Imagine having to take what you have with your own possessions and having to walk or try to get on a bus or some sort of train or something and then go to a country that you're just not as familiar with. The toll here is absolutely devastating. There's no reason for it. I hope the world will continue to look at this and understand that Vladimir Putin is a thug He is just absolutely one of the worst dictators on the face of the planet, and he's ruthless in all that he does. May God bless the people of of Ukraine, and uh, the dates may not spin out of even more control than it is. Stay with us. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. 
Hey, this is actually Jason Chaffetz, and i got to tell you, it's a lot of fun. I really appreciate Brian Comey letting me sit in his uh, seat every once in a while and doing so today. Uh, I love talking about policy. I love talking about the issues. I just love talking about the world and what's happening and, and uh, doing something in the United States of America that you can't do in a lot of places, which is have that discussion. And um, I just find radio to be such a great format. You know, don't get lost in 140 characters and the back and forth. And you actually get to dive in and t- go a little deeper on issues. And, you know, I, I served in the United States Congress for eight and a half years. So just uh, thrilled and honored to do so. And along the way, you meet some people that you probably wouldn't meet otherwise. And thrilled to have on uh, Congressman Doug Collins uh, from the great state of Georgia. He's joining us. Uh, he served with me in the United States Congress. We were both on the Judiciary Committee. He was the uh, former ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee. He's host of the Doug Collins podcast and author of The Clock and the Calendar, a front row look at the Democrats' obsession with Donald Trump. And he's just an all-around good guy, Doug Collins. Thanks for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, Jason, it's good to be with you there. Sitting in Brian's chair this morning, got it going. Yeah, you know, it's uh, I've just kind of settled in here, and yeah, he kicks me out pretty quick. But I, I really do have a lot of fun <laughs> with it. And, Doug, you know, one of the things I enjoyed and as I got to know you through the years is just um, you you have a love and a passion of the country. You you have a, a military background. You represent you've represented for a long time uh, the good people there in Georgia who are about as patriotic and and pro military as you can possibly be um and so I know you'd be pained and I'm pained when I hear that there was an American journalist who was out there serving uh you know trying to bring the story back home and uh and he was he was killed and uh, nobody wants to see that let's listen to Jake Sullivan uh, the National Security Advisor. He was on CBS, and uh, let's get his take on this. Cut nine. I do want to ask you about these reports that U.S. journalists have been killed in Ukraine by Russian forces. Do we know what the consequence would be for Russia killing an American? Well, this is obviously shocking and horrifying, and uh, I've just learned about it as I came on to air here, so I will be consulting with my colleagues, will be consulting with the Ukrainians, uh, to, to determine uh, how this happened and uh, then to measure and execute appropriate consequences as a result of it. I don't know what the right answer to that is. You have somebody in the theater of war get shot. I don't know all the details. haven't seen a video. Don't understand what happened or didn't happen. But nobody wants to see an American. Nobody wants to see a Ukrainian, for that matter, have to lose their life unnecessarily. What's your take on all this, Doug? Well, a twofold take, Jason. I think the concern I have is Jake Sullivan and the rest. I mean, this you and I could talk about Jake Sullivan in other contexts uh, that really caused me to have concern about him being uh, in the position he is in, which is sort of scary if you look at it. But I get his answer there, but his answer was very concerning in the sense of it was too – have we went back to this too diplomatic of an approach? Putin invaded a country. Putin has committed a war crime. His soldiers have killed, uh, on all accounts and all reports of what happened from another reporter who was there, shot and killed an American journalist. All right, listen, we passed that by. He was a journalist that caught in a war zone, fog of war. We get that. But my next question is, is they, that yesterday Russia bombed 10 miles away from the Polish border. 
where at what point will this administration you know get to a point where not you know involving ourselves in the middle of a ground war in Russia, but be ready to respond when Putin or or the forces actually incur outside of the Ukraine, or when does it get to the point where Putin feels any pushback from an administration that seemingly is just letting others lead? And I think that's my concern right now. Uh, biggest, they have seen what this administration will do, and they're acting upon what the administration is allowing them to do. Well, let's listen to General Jack Keane. He was on the next revolution last night on Fox News. Uh, really appreciate his, uh, his expert analysis, but uh, let's go to cut 12. That's been a pattern of behavior here for some time. I mean, going back to 2021, when Putin put 70,000 troops on the Ukraine border, we had a shipment going in there that same month, March and April, that was scheduled from the Trump administration of arms and ammunition. And the Biden administration delayed it to August. Then when they showed up in the fall mm-hmm. after the Afghanistan fiasco with 170,000 troops, we delayed another shipment. And the stated reason for delaying both shipments were we did not want to provoke Putin into attacking. It's outrageous what happens to this administration. Opposite effect, right? Maybe should have gotten in those before <laughs> so that Putin would have been. I mean, they looked at that. Seems like it was absolutely backwards, Doug. Uh, it is backwards. I mean, look, this, there's two things that I want to make sure. And General King, he actually hit it pretty well there. And I'm in a third part. But the first two is this. Number one is, is the attack, the weakening of America's uh, energy dependence. I think that's number one. We've talked about that a great deal. Number two, the Afghanistan. He mentioned this. The Afghanistan withdrawal gave the world's dictators a look into really what is the incomplete-looking uh, soul, so to speak, of this administration that was willing to, to turn people away, 60 feet away, were willing to walk away and leave them after promising to take care of them. They saw that happen. Then my third question, Jason, and this is, as you said, as you were you know, talking about long form of a little bit of radio, let me ask you this. Didn't the Democrats want to impeach Donald Trump for legally holding up a what they perceived was a, a shipment of, of arms to the Ukraine. And there we have the Biden administration holding up two in a time in which there was a known threat of the, of the Russians on the border. This is, I mean, the, the, you cannot get any more hypocritical unless, you know, it, it, I just, this is the part that scares me right now. And I think there's another part, Jason, I'd love to hear, you know, we talk about this. Is I don't think that the Russian, I mean, the Iranian strike in uh, northern Iraq was a mistake. I think, it, I, if anything, I think it was probably coordinated or at least approved upon just to see, you know, what America will do. And, and you notice I haven't heard a lot of response from the administration over that attack. Does that surprise you as well? Yeah, I mean, what I've heard is, well, we're not sure it was an attack on the actual consulate. I mean, there were only, what, six-plus missiles that just happened to fly from Iran into Iraq that we just happened to. And we are in the midst of these negotiations. Now, Doug Collins, explain to me why in the world we would rely on the Russians to do the negotiating at the table with Iran. What? it? Well, it is amazing, and you had a huge part to play in this. But it was only a, a few—it was only a few people in Britain. It was about a movie from Egypt that, that caused Benghazi. You know, I mean, come on, give me a break. This is yeah. the same bunch of people that will use anything that they can. There's what bothers me is why are they so desperate to strike a deal with Iran? And again, 
to go back to, to allowing them for the nuclear forces. And China and Russia both said within the last 10 days, we're shocked that America has allowed some of the concessions that they have. What is it about the Biden administration or the Obama, going back to Obama administration, that is so enamored with Iran? I, I just don't get that. That's a country that hates us, number one, but does not even recognize Israel's right to exist. I mean, I don't get why. I would, I would rather deal with almost anything else, like our, our own supplies of oil, than go to Iran and beg hat in hand. There was two tours in Democrat administrations in the last 15 years. The first one was the Obama apology tour to the world. The second one is going on right now, and it's the Biden hat in hand tour to people in the world to get them to give us oil. No, it's. I mean, to suggest that we have to send people down to Venezuela to, to open that up. All right, I don't want to let go of this Iran nuclear deal. Um, I was on the panel, as I mentioned earlier, on Fox News Sunday when Brett Baer was interviewing Wendy Sherman from the State Department. Let's go to cut 24 and get her take on, on what's going on there. Well, I think it's close, and we would like all of the parties, including Russia, which has indicated it's got some concerns to bring this to a close. You know, we are very concerned about what Iran is doing, but imagine these Iranians with a nuclear weapon. Uh, we need to get that off the table so we can address their malign behavior in the Middle East, uh, and we will do all of the above. Uh, but first, we've got to get this deal, and it is not yet closed. Doug Collins. What's Are you take? kidding me? Are you kidding me? Jason, when you, were, you and I both were in Congress when this was going on, this, there's nothing about the Iranian deal that keeps them from developing nuclear weapons. This is a lie. All it does at best is slow it down. And they've been speeding up and breaking this protocol ever since the first one was done. How does, how does a reporter who's interviewing Wendy Sherman actually sit there and say, Okay, well, here's the follow-up question. Well, this nowhere in this agreement does it say they can't have a nuclear weapon. It doesn't say that. And yet this is how they sell it. And now sitting there, what amazes me, too, is they say, well, the Russians are here helping to negotiate. It's like I'm sitting with somebody who I know is down the street attacking my cousin's home, so to speak, and, and spreading genocide three streets over. But I'm going to sit here and talk about him. Uh, I talk civilly with them about this issue. I, I, I don't. It, it's 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 beyond fathomable. I think to most Americans right now. Well, the goal is supposedly not to allow uh, Iran to develop a nuclear weapon. That that we can all agree on. Yeah, but, but you to your point, that. that's not. There has to be a way to verify to actually go in and check. And you know, when this first uh, Iran nuclear deal was put in place, I was chairman of the Oversight Committee, so I went to the State Department and said, hey, all right, well, I want to go to Iran and have a look. And they said, they just laughed, like, are you kidding me? Nobody's going to Iran. Well, then how do we verify what's going on there? So it, uh, don't we have people going? Look, if we have Americans going in to verify and check out these facilities, then I want to go too. And why can't yeah. Congress have a have a look? Oh, no, no, nobody's going in. I mean, they just blew me off. Like, are you kidding me? There's no possible way we're going to allow you to t even talk about that. But it is one of the greatest threats that's going on to the world today. And to suggest that Russia and China are going to be party to c coming up with the negotiation here, I, I, I just don't understand it. I just don't understand. Uh, well, we don't, and I think you hit it, you know, in that perfectly. There's one thing though that is is true, and, and I've never had anybody, media or the previous administration or this one. The one thing that was true is centrifuges were still spinning in Iran and have been for the last 10, 12 years. They all they did was they put it behind closed doors, they slowed it up, 
I mean, we didn't even enforce the, the travel restrictions until Donald Trump did. I mean, the, the, their folks were traveling. The ones who were supposed to be banned were still traveling the world. I mean, yeah. uh, it's just a joke. All right. Well, last take here, uh, Congressman or Doug. I, I like just calling you Doug. I hope you're all right yeah, with Doug, that. We're good. Uh, Mike Pompeo, uh, he was on Sunday Morning Futures, the former Secretary of State, somebody we both served with in the Congress, um, on his expectations about President Xi and whether or not they'll go into Taiwan. Cut 20. Xi Jinping is determined. He's made clear his intention to, quote, reunify, end of quote, with Taiwan. What tools, what tactics, what timing is difficult to know. I only know this. It is not predetermined that he'll be successful at that. He'll be successful that if we're scared, if we think that taking action to support the Taiwanese people is provocative to Xi Jinping. It's not. This is an independent nation. They know it. The world knows it. We ought to behave as such, and we ought to provide them the tools they need to, ma- to maintain their yeah. own sovereignty. This is important, Maria, for the whole world and for the central idea that has, conduct- that has allowed Western civilization to advance in the way it has these last years. We can't walk yeah. away from that. Is that the right public policy? Are we all in if they go into Taiwan? Well, I, I think the world would be all in. I think I, I disagree just a little bit. I, I know that there is this assumption that Taiwan, you know, that China is looking to make their move on Taiwan, probably the best time that they could do it right now. Um, but I, I, you know, I'm still looking at it. Xi is very uh, also looking at it from an, an economic world perspective. Taiwan is much different than most any others. Uh, if he does, though, I would say that you know there, there's a good probability that. Uh, you and I both know a quick first strike from China, uh, Taiwan is gone in a, in a, in a, in a, in a very short amount of time. The question would be is how quick the world would react to it. And would they push them back out? I'm not sure, you know, what Biden administration would do right now. I mean, again, we're still waiting for a response about, you know, missiles coming from Iran into our near our base in in Iraq. So, uh, but it is concerning the world. Jason, I don't know about you, but it, for me, this is about as concerning a time as I've seen it, even probably since the Cuban Missile Crisis. We have two or three areas that are all are tender boxes for what would drag us into a war with peer-to-peer power. And as someone in the Air Force still, that concerns me. It's something we've ignored for a long time. Um, and that's the part that concerns me the most. And with an administration, the commander-in-chief, that does not seem to have a good clue about leading from up front, but leading from behind. Yeah, I think that's it. I think it's the lack of American leadership, the ability to rally the world. Uh, I just totally believe, as I know you do, in peace through strength, that from Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump, we had leaders out there that were saying, hey, you know what? Uh, The United States of military is the biggest, baddest military on the face of the planet. We don't apologize for it. It's what's going to keep the the peace. But uh, we don't act like it right now. And uh, that's when you send Kamala Harris as the vice president over to do your bidding on her second trip to, to <laughs> Europe. Uh, I, that ain't getting it done. Uh, Doug Collins. Thanks for joining us. Former ranking member of the house judiciary committee, host of the Doug Collins podcast and author of the clock and the calendar, a front row look at the Democrats obsession with Donald Trump and all around good guy of uh, Congressman, former Congressman from Georgia, Doug Collins. Thanks for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade show. Jason, take care. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Take care. All right. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show.
The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Well, almost, Brian Kilmeade. This is Jason Javits. I'm filling in for Brian today, and uh, I've had some good, lively discussion. You know, there's a lot going on in the United States, a lot that may be weighing on your minds. Uh, Not only the heels of COVID, but uh, war raging in Europe. We've got inflationary problems, energy problems, uh, cost of foods going up. I mean, life is just much more expensive and much more uh, taking a toll on, on, on people. But you know what? Here's the good news. One of the great American traditions, it starts tomorrow. And I, I want to make sure that you're paying attention. Not only did you have to move your clocks forward this past Sunday, which except for those good people in Arizona, everybody had to go move their clocks forward. Uh, you know what? Uh, March Madness is upon us. Now, I don't, you know, close your ears here for a second if you don't, if you don't want to know who's going to win. But uh, you got to fill out those brackets. You got to get that thing prepared. And I, I, I tell you, I've had more, more fun with college sports this year. I thought college football just really, I really had a great time with college football this year, probably as much as any year in recent memory. Uh, it's good to see it back and people in the stands. But there's nothing like March Madness. Those rocking arenas, I think, is going to be so fun with the COVID kind of in the rearview mirror here. I'm a big Gonzaga fan. I got to tell you, I think they're going to go all the way. If I had to, you saw my bracket, they would be at the top of the heap. They're going to go all the way. But you know what? Root for your team. Have fun with it. Fill out that bracket. You start paying attention to games that you've never paid attention to in the past. It's a great American tradition. It brings the country together for a couple of weeks. Cinderella stories. Who's it going to be? But at the end of the day, it's going to be those good people at Gonzaga that are actually going to get to the finish line, bring home that national championship, and we're going to have fun watching it every single step of the way. So enjoy the March Madness. And uh, for the Brian Kilmeade Show, sorry to tell you who's going to win, but they're going to win. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. All right, welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm Jason Chaffetz. I'm filling in for Brian. Honored and pleased to do so. Uh, We got a great hour, lots to talk about. So many things happening in the news, but we want to start off by welcoming... 92.7 WMAY Springfield's News and Talk to the Brian Kilmeade uh, Show and Network and glad they're an affiliate there in Springfield, Illinois. Welcome WMAY 92.7. You're going to love it. Uh, Brian puts together a great show and we got great guests today. Um, And we're going to kick things off right away with Michael Goodwin. Uh, New York Post uh, columnist, Fox News contributor. And I got to tell you, if New York Post, uh, if you want to read a column, you know, day in and day out, you want to read something that really has something to say, uh, who's going to give you a perspective. There's nobody better than Michael Goodwin. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Brian Kilmeade Show, Michael. My pleasure, Jason. Thank you. Uh, no, I, I love chatting with you. So this is a good opportunity to kind of dive a little deeper. But I, I love the way you write and what you write. And uh, you've got an interesting one out here. Biden is letting Putin run the Iran nuclear talks. What could go wrong there, Michael? <laughs> well, you know, that's what struck me when I 
stumbled on this. I, I, as I say in the column, um, I saw this several weeks back, maybe even a month or so, and it was that uh, the, the United States had effectively designated Russia to be the broker with Iran on the nuclear talks. And this is because Iran will not meet with the Americans directly. There had to be a go-between. For a while it was Finland, I believe. But there, there have been various uh, go-betweens, and somehow it became Russia. Now, that never makes any sense when you line up you know, Russia's alliance with Iran in Syria and elsewhere, they are partners. They're strategic and military partners. And so why in the world would we assume that they could broker, be an honest broker in this deal? But then you, you, you fast forward to what's happened in Ukraine, and you say, well, okay, even if the Biden administration thought Russia could deliver an Iran deal, you know, last year, what about this year? What about when Putin starts massing the troops on the, on the Ukraine border and starts making all kinds of threats? That doesn't say to Biden and Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, the national security, hey, you know, maybe, maybe this arrangement with Russia on Iran isn't that good of an idea now, given that we're, you know, Putin is about to invade an ally of ours. Uh, even when Putin doesn't invade, even when he starts slaughtering civilians and turning Ukrainian cities into rubble, creating mass refugees uh, not seen in Europe since World War II, they don't rethink it. They, they continue to let it go. And as I, as I say in the column, in January, in the third week of January, these, the, the confluence of events is amazing. NATO is mobilizing against Putin, and Jake, uh, uh, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, is in publicly encouraging the Russians to give the Iranians a sense of urgency about completing the Iran nuclear deal. And then fast forward to last week, when ever they say the deal is all but done, it's ready to go, and the Russian negotiator, our supposed, our honest broker, is, is on a video saying, boy, the Iranians really got a great deal here. They got more than we could expect. They fought for everything. They got it. Oh, and our friends, the Chinese, were very helpful, too. So there you have it, Russia, Iran, and China on one side negotiating the nuclear deal, which we are just happy to have done. It makes no sense in the world. And as I write, you know, my head, it's like sometimes you get these stories that you scratch your head. Other times you feel like you want to pull out your hair. This one makes your head explode. How yeah. in the world could they go through with this? And what kind of deal could possibly emerge that would make it worthwhile to work with Putin, whom we have called a war criminal? I mean, it's simply unbelievable that this is happening before our eyes. Well, there, there, and there's absolutely no reason, no history, no no reason that we would ever trust a Vladimir Putin. I mean, I don't know how you say that, believe that, um, and then say, well, but go ahead and negotiate on our behalf. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I, I, on Fox News Sunday, um, Brett Baer was able to interview the Deputy, Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman. I was on the panel of that show. Um, but listen to her on Cut 23, and uh, I want to get your take on it. If Iran has a nuclear weapon, 
its ability to project power into the Middle East and to deter us, our allies and partners, is enormous. So President Biden believes very strongly, as does Secretary Blinken, as do I, that we need to make sure that Iran never obtains a nuclear weapon. And then we also need to deal with their malign behavior in the region. Uh, but first, we've got to make sure that they cannot obtain a nuclear right. weapon. You know, it, it strikes me, Michael, that they so desperately want a piece of paper um, that, that may be worthless. Um, it, certainly, if it prohibits or does not allow for a way to verify and to go kick the tires and actually see what's actually going on here. I thought the first nuclear deal was just an embarrassment. I don't I can't imagine that the second one would be better. No, and, and, and I think it's also uh, revealing what she said there. And then we've got to deal with their malign behavior. You right. know, uh, Jason, in sports, there's, a, there's an old line that you, you play like you practice, meaning right. what you're doing today is what you're going to do on Sunday if it's the NFL, et cetera. Well, right now, the Biden administration is doing nothing to counter malign, the malign behavior of Iran. And, but we're supposed to believe that once they have that piece of paper, then they'll take a, go on Iran's malign behavior. Look, it, you know, of course we don't want them to have a nuclear weapon, but if, if they're going to continue to behave as they behave, even under the deal now, if they, if they continue to uh, pursue terrorism throughout the region, attack our allies, Saudis and the others, what good is this piece of paper? And so I, I think however you look at it, you would have to say that this is this has come kind of a fan, fantasy foreign policy, that, the, that this piece of paper will constrain Iran. Well, who's going to enforce the piece of paper, uh, if not the United States? I mean, so this whole thing was misbegotten. It started in 2015 with the Obama administration and John Kerry, who continued to advise Iran after Donald Trump withdrew from the agreement. Uh, and, and, and then the reality, too, is we've got Iran on its heels. Uh, only China and probably Russia will will deal with it economically and buy its oil, that sort of thing. Uh, so why should we let them off the mat as long as they continue to behave as they continue? I mean, this firing of missiles into Iraq over the weekend, maybe it wasn't aimed at our consulate, but who was it aimed at? And why why should we just excuse this kind of behavior? Yeah, I'm sure it was just an accident, you know, when you have multiple missiles fired that just happened to land right near our consulate. We don't have a whole lot of consulates there uh, in Iraq. Um, here's, let's listen to the same Wendy Sherman on Fox News Sunday, the Deputy Secretary of State, talking about that attack that went from Iran into Iraq. Cut 21. This was a very concerning attack, as General Keene pointed out. Uh, indeed, uh, we do not believe that the consulate was actually the target of this uh, missile attack. Uh, we are very glad that our facilities are secure, that everybody's accounted for, uh, that no one has been hurt or killed. But all of that said, uh, this is great concern. Uh, there will indeed <clears throat> be a statement, I'm sure, uh, coming out uh, shortly, uh, as well as calls in. This was an attack on Iraq's sovereignty among other things, and of great concern to all of us. And But, Michael, I think as you pointed out in her first quote, um, 
you know, then they will deal with their malign behavior only after they deal with this other thing. This, this is the problem with the Biden administration. They're so tepid. They don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. They don't want to come out too strongly against them because, well, we want them to sign this nuclear deal. Uh, but there's a very real threat right now that's going on attacking and sending missiles with great proximity to the consulate. And you bring up a good point. If, it, if they're not attacking the consulate, if they're not trying to fire in on consulate or send warning shots, then what were they doing? Right. Well, and look, I, I think there's a word for this, and, and uh, it's not one we should use lightly, but this is a form of appeasement. This is that we're going to let them fire missiles. We're going to let them uh, uh, send uh, uh, terror squads into Saudi Arabia. We're going to let them do all kinds of things around the world. But then once we get the agreement, we're going to stop their malign behavior. Why would Iran ever stop its malign behavior until the United States enforces some rules of the road on it. But so we don't have to make an agreement to enforce those. So the idea that we're going to enforce some rules later just doesn't bear any scrutiny. There's no history of it. There's no example of it. Uh, this is this is a perfect moment that even supposedly when it's about to enter into this agreement, Iran can fires missiles into Iraq. And we're, yet we're supposed to believe that that agreement will change everything. I mean, it just defies common sense. But I think it is, is the Biden administration's, just as it was the Obama administration's, way of coddling Iran. And, you know, if you go back, Jason, um, there were some really interesting things written about what Obama was up to with Iran and the views of Iran. It was basically not just to bring Iran in from the cold. It was it was essentially to make them the counterweight to the Arab nations, to Saudis, to the UAE, to our allies and to Israel. So you have Iran on one side, uh, probably nuclear armed uh, before too many years pass, and you have our allies on the other side. I mean, why would we want to encourage someone who is not our ally. There's no promise, no real hope of it ever being our ally in the foreseeable future, but we're going to treat them like a friend. We're going to treat them like an ally. We're going to give them the benefits. We're going to give them all the money, unfreeze all that money that Obama did, send them cash and on pallets and airplanes. None of it makes any coherent sense, especially when you look at what's going on with Russia. You coddle these rogues like this, and one day they wake up and they want to bite you. Yeah, I, I'm glad you're illuminating this in your article. It's called Biden is Letting Putin Run the Iran Nuclear Talks. It really is stunning if you think about it. The other the way that uh, I want people to make sure they understand that we have empowered Iran is the high price of gasoline. You know, uh, the the Democrats in large part have pushed for higher fuel prices because it fits their narrative with the Green New Deal uh, to justify the development of a lot of these alternative forms of energy. And, hey, look, I'm I'm all about, hey, let's go ahead and develop all forms of energy, uh, all of the above kind of approach. But when price of gas is up over one hundred and ten dollars a barrel, the Iranians and the Russians make a lot of money. That's how they feel their future. One of the things that Donald Trump did is help 
starve these nations is the fact that the price of gas was so low. So energy independence for the United States of America is more imperative than ever, and it does play a role in Iran as well. Absolutely. And you look at, uh, at, at Trump's taking out Soleimani um, in, in Iraq, um, the Iranian terror master. Um, Joe Biden said he would not have done that. Uh, So Joe Biden also, of course, would not have gone after Osama bin Laden, as he said at one point before changing his story. So, I mean, you you could not get a more stark comparison to how how do you deal with these rogue nations? Uh, Henry Kissinger said years ago about Iran, it has to decide whether it wants to be a country or a cause. And to judge from its behavior, you would have to say it's still a cause. Iran is still a cause. It's not really a country that is going to abide by treaties, that's going to behave in ways that we would expect of allies or even people under agreement. They are a cause, and that a cause is the, radic- is the export of radical Islam. And yeah. as long as they continue to do that, uh, why should we treat it as though it's just another country? Well, you bring up a huge, great point. There's so much to talk about. It is a complex issue. But uh, Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor, thanks so much for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show today. We do appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. My pleasure. All right, Michael Goodwin, thank you. Stay with us. We'll be back with more of the Brian Kilmeade Show right after this. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, this is actually Jason Chaffetz. Honored to fill in for Brian Kilmeade. You know, I served uh, eight and a half years in the United States Congress, and I wanted to bring up something here briefly uh, before we go to the next commercial break that happened last week. And that is the Democrats passed out, and with the Republican help, um, a $1.5 trillion, trillion. By the way, if you spend a million dollars a day every day, it would take you nearly 3,000 years to get to $1 trillion. That's how much money they're talking about. We're $30 trillion in debt. A bill was introduced at 1.30 in the morning. It was more than 2,700 pages. And then they voted on that night. There is absolutely nobody that actually read the bill. Now, if you're in the majority, you could probably try to make the argument that, hey, you know, we knew it was going to go in it, but uh, the minority never had a chance to read it. And my guess is the overwhelming majority, almost all of the people, uh, didn't have the light of day. I thought Republicans blew an opportunity to actually highlight this and say, no, we're going to vote no on a bill that has only had the light of day less than 24 hours, well, especially if you're spending $1.5 trillion. Now, there are hundreds of pages and hundreds of millions of dollars in the earmarks that are also in here. You know, when I first came to Congress back in 2009, we were fighting against earmarks, and fortunately, we won that fight. Earmarks were taken out. Some would argue that earmarks are the congressional prerogative to try to make a case that the congressionally directed spending is the way that you should do things. But if you're a purist, then you'd say that all of that is congressionally directed spending, And uh, you would have even more earmarks. But this is just the medicine that uh, this is the sugar that makes the medicine go down. 
you want to go try to buy votes. You want to go make sure things happen. You want to make sure that Chuck Schumer gets the money that he wants in his district, that Nancy Pelosi gets the tens of millions of dollars that she got for her district. Then guess what? You reinstitute earmarks. You pay off these um, members of Congress by getting them special little pork for their district, and then you end up with a bloated budget. That's where we're at. The other thing I would highlight is we didn't have a budget this year. Democrats in the House and the Senate never even introduced a budget, and yet we went ahead and passed $1.5 trillion. Is it a mystery is why we're $30 trillion in debt? You couldn't do that at your work. You couldn't do that at home. But only the federal government, which can continue to print money and go to the Fed and say, print more, buy more, do more. That's why we're in the mess that we're at. Should have gotten a lot more attention. I know there's war in Europe, but let's pay attention at home and continue to be the economic superpower. Stay with us. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I hope that China is looking very carefully at what's happening. Uh, We have a united world uh, with very grave and very consequential sanctions on Russia. Uh, We understand and support a one-China policy, uh, but we don't believe uh, that China PRC ought to take Taiwan by force, uh, and we will do everything we can to deter uh, that effort by uh, the PRC. Uh, and I think they're watching very closely. In fact, I think they made that statement, Brett, because they've seen what's happened and they're trying to go on the offense, knowing that uh, they ought to be on the defense. That was Wendy Sherman, Deputy Secretary of State on Fox News Sunday, talking to Brett Baer. Uh, I'm Jason Chaffetz. I'm filling in for, for Brian Kilmeade. But we also have joining us on the line now somebody who is wicked smart on these types of issues, Alex Gray. He served as the deputy assistant to the president and chief of staff to the White House National Security Council from 2019 to 2021. There during the Trump administration, Alex Gray is also a candidate for the United States um, Senate, the U.S. Senate there in Oklahoma. They have a special election because of uh, retirement and uh, Alex Gray. Thanks for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks for having me, Jason. You know, I I've always learned something. The more I talk to you, the more I learn about uh, the world. And and you had a special bird's eye view. I mean, your work on foreign policy and and foreign affairs is uh, is truly amazing. But then, being the chief of staff to the National Security Council, you get to see so much intelligence and whatnot's going on. Help us understand that the China role here, because China, um, you know, news out now that uh, Russia is leaning on China, asking them for assistance. Uh, China is supposedly involved in the Iran nuclear deal that we are negotiating. We talked about this. Uh, we've talked about this a lot. Um, that somehow, some way, we're negotiating an Iran nuclear deal with Russia as being the moderator. I. I I just physically don't understand that. But there's so much that China is involved and engaged with. And the concern is that, you know, they're looking at the way Russia is handling Ukraine and what lessons are they learning and not learning. And certainly they learned a lot with what we we did and didn't do in Afghanistan. So it's a very complex situation. Help us break it down. Well, thanks, Jason. I I think the thing to start with is, 
First of all, you know, you, you had that comment from Wendy Sherman. I think it's important for people to remember that Wendy Sherman was one of the main architects of the disastrous Iran nuclear deal under President Obama. And so that's that's the lens that she comes with when we're thinking about this, this situation. The second thing is, you know, only at the U.S. State Department would it be considered logical to sanction the Russians, try and cut them off from the the global financial system, which we should be doing, uh, while at the same time working with those same uh, Russian diplomats to try and get the disastrous Iran nuclear deal back on the table. So, so you know, talk about an exercise in futility. Um, you know, the the other thing I think it's worth pointing out is the intelligence community shortly before the Ukraine uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine came out and said. Oh, we've been wrong for many years, and Russia and China are actually collaborating and working very closely together across any number of areas. A lot of us knew that and pointed that out, but have been told for years by the intelligence community that, that really there was nothing to see here. They had separate interests. They weren't truly uh, collaborators in, in the sense that that's obvious now that they are. The thing that the United States has to, to really be, be careful of and to be watching, Jason, is every step that we make globally has repercussions elsewhere in the world. It means that when you have a disastrous, misguided, poorly executed withdrawal from Afghanistan, that has implications in Ukraine. When you fail to deter in Ukraine, when you fail to take the type of actions President Trump took during his four years in office to strengthen Ukraine, the results of that are an emboldened China, an emboldened Iran, uh, and we're even seeing an emboldened Venezuela uh, in the Western Hemisphere. So all of these things are interconnected, and I think we need to be very, very careful, uh, and, and this is one of the lessons of President Trump's presidency, that weakness is provocative, strength deters. And when you had four years of strength followed by a year of weakness, you've seen some of the worst national security disasters of the last half century in such a short period of time because of the change in policy we've seen under President Biden. Yeah, I think it's, you know, going back to Ronald Reagan and certainly Donald Trump, the idea of peace through strength uh, and the projection of strength. And it's it's amazing how quickly that can be lost and given up and that the uh, the bullies of the world can feel emboldened to go ahead and make movement and do things. I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, this movement into Ukraine happened during the Biden administration, didn't happen during the Trump administration. No, it, it, and there's, you know, as President Trump has pointed out, and a lot of us who worked for him have pointed out, the specific policies that President Trump undertook on Russia were the toughest policies that any president has taken since the end of the Cold War. He sanctioned more Russian individuals and oligarchs than any president up to that point. He provided the Javelin anti-tank missiles that we're seeing at work now to the Ukrainian army. He provided a number of excess defense articles, you know, key U.S. systems that were needed by the Ukrainians, uh, sent those over in, in large quantities. Uh, and he tried to take down the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and came very close to doing so until the Biden administration reversed it after taking office. So you look at that record and you contrast it with a little over a year of President Biden, and you see what we've gotten. Afghanistan overrun by the Taliban, Ukraine invaded, energy independence squandered. Uh, it's really a textbook example of how to take a winning foreign policy and turn it into a catastrophe in, a sh in short order. 
Now, Alex Gray, you are running for the United States Senate there in Oklahoma, but obviously, I, you know, the Oklahomans I understand and that I've known are about as patriotic and military. They care about our military as much as anything. Um, and it's amazing when you got I, the few times I've been out on some of our warships, um, the USS Eisenhower, the San Jacinto, some of these uh, just amazing experiences. Um, and you find people from all over the country. Uh, you know, you don't have to be from, a, you know, from a Florida or a California to be in the Navy. Obviously, you got a lot of people that from Oklahoma and whatnot uh, that are out there on these ships. But I've heard you talk about the need to develop. And, you know, you worked very closely with Ambassador uh, Robert O'Brien, who was the National Security Advisor. Robert O'Brien's been a real leader on on saying, look, our United States Navy really needs to be built up. Explain to us why that has to happen. And contrast that, if you will, on the march that that China is doing, because they're building up their Navy about as fast as can possibly be done. Well, it's a, it's an important point. And, and, you know, of course, Ambassador O'Brien has been a leader on this for, for decade and a half uh, and certainly worked very hard with President Trump on it. Um, President Trump instinctively understood why a powerful Navy matters, the same way Ronald Reagan did when he built 600 ships. Um, you look at what the Chinese are doing, right? They're, they're building uh, one point uh, this year. They built three ships. They commissioned three Chinese Navy ships in a single day. We're basically on track to build six or seven or so in the entire year. Um, they're now the world's largest Navy. Uh, and, you know, quantity has a quality all of its own. The United States Navy remains the world's technological leader, and it's going to remain that way for a long time. But when you start building the quantity of ships that the Chinese are doing, uh, it, it becomes very, very challenging, even to a Navy as sophisticated as ours. Um, it, it matters to every American, whether you're in Oklahoma, whether you're in California, whether you're in Florida. It matters because that's the, the global uh, system, the supply chain that we're watching uh, really strain in the last couple of years during COVID. All of that is upheld by the power of the U.S. Navy. And without that Navy, we see what happens at the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians in the Straits of Hormuz, uh, global piracy off the coast of Africa. You watch all of this, and without the U.S. Navy, so much of what we take for granted economically and in terms of supply chain resilience is at risk. So I, I think one of the things that President Trump did that was so uh, insightful and, and really gave his successor a great starting point to build on was to say, we're going to build a 355-ship Navy. We're going to grow back on a track uh, much higher than that over the course of time, and we're going to get our Navy back to a preeminent position, unchallengeable by any power in the world. Uh, and unfortunately, again, we have not seen the investment that President Trump started continue under his successor. It's such an important point. And, you know, as we look forward, you know, look at what's going on and all eyes are focused on Ukraine. The United States of America has got to be able to fight and be able to pay attention on on, on multiple fronts. So, you know, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, will China, should China, when will China you know, do what it's going to do in Taiwan. Um, you know, the, these are types of things that needed to be d- debated and whatnot. Um, but we've also got to pay attention to what Russia is doing. And I guess one of the biggest concerns is that, 
you know, the situation with Russia just spins out of control. That here they've got rockets flying that are very close to the Polish border. It, it just takes one errant missile here or there, and then suddenly you've got to respond, and then, you know, will it spiral out of control? Um, one of the big concerns, I think, because of their history, is that Russia would ultimately use a, a biological attack. Listen to John Kirby, the uh, the Pentagon spokesperson on ABC, talking about the possibility of a chemical or biological attack. Well, I want to be careful we don't get into intelligence assessments here. We continue to watch this very, very closely. It is of the Russian playbook that that which they accuse you of, they're planning to do. Now, again, we haven't seen anything that indicates some sort of imminent chemical or biological attack right now, but we're watching this very, very closely. I mean, this is a reality, right? Because, I mean, look at what they've done in Syria. Look at what they've done in their own people. Well, you know, Admiral Kirby is certainly correct in the sense that the Russians often accuse their opponents of doing exactly what they've done or they're about to do. So it's it's that's there's no doubt about that. I think what the United States has to be thinking about is every time we choose uh, to to accept the next step up the escalation ladder, whether it's from Russia, whether it's from uh, Iran, whether it's from North Korea. You know, we've now seen this in Afghanistan. We've seen it in Ukraine. We're continuing uh, to to send the signal of weakness. Now, no one's talking about going and and intervening militarily in this conflict. And I think that would be a disaster from the standpoint of focusing on what the preeminent threat of this century is, which is China. The United States getting bogged down in the Middle East again or in Eastern Europe is a terrible, terrible thing, not just the human cost for the American soldiers, the economic cost for the American people, but strategically it's a, it would be a disaster for us uh, that would take decades to, to recover from. That being said, this is where deterrence is so important. We have to be in a position, and this is where the, the administration unfortunately has not uh, has not spoken clearly and confidently about what its intentions are from a deterrence standpoint. We waited too long to supply the Ukrainians, as President Trump did, uh, with the weapons they needed to be a real deterrent force to give the Russians second thoughts about going in. Um, you know, the Russians had understood what the Ukrainian army was capable of doing, I think there maybe would have been a a recalculation about this invasion. And part of that recalculation would have been a a greater signal from the U.S. and the European Union that we were willing to do the financial sanctions that we've ultimately done and that we were willing to continue supplying javelins and and stingers and other, uh, other weaponry to the Ukrainians. I think that would have changed the calculus. So we have to, when we think about where Putin's headed next, both in terms of other countries or or other tactics he might use, the administration has to speak very strongly about what its escalation points are, where it views uh, where it views the red lines, and unlike President Obama in Syria, it has to be what, willing to enforce those red lines. President Trump did this over and over and over again. He did it with North Korea. He did it with Iran. He did it with China. He made very clear what was unacceptable to the United States, and no one ever doubted when Donald Trump said this was a red line to not cross. No one ever doubted that you should not cross that. Yeah, instead you have President Biden who keeps telling the world what he won't do instead of being able to say, here are the lines. Let's not make any mistakes, folks, uh, because here's what's going to trigger some 
severe action. And I don't think there was anybody anybody would have doubted the idea that uh, Donald Trump would have would have actually followed through on it. I think that's what helps create the it creates the peace and and being able to use the strength of the United States of America. But I could talk to you all day about this. One of the best minds uh, out there. Uh, you can see why Alex Gray ascended to become the chief of staff to the White House National Security Council. He's a candidate for the United States Senate from the great state of Oklahoma. Um, but uh, Alex Gray, thank you so much for joining us today on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks for having me, Jason. All right, we'll be back with more of the Brian Kilmeade Show right after this. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. So you've seen some of that data on a, on a fourth dose. A second booster shot. Mm-hmm. You think it will be necessary? It is necessary a fourth boost right now. The, the protection that we are getting from the third, it is uh, good enough. Actually, quite good for hospitalizations and deaths. It's not that good against infections, but doesn't last very long. Mm-hmm. But we are just submitting those data to the FDA, and then we will see what the experts also will say outside Pfizer. Well, that's the uh, Pfizer CEO. No, no conflict of interest there. Hey, you're going to need a fourth booster shot. Listen, let me be really clear. This is just my own personal opinion. Don't listen to some dude on the radio tell you whether or not you should get a booster shot. That's between you and your medical professional, your doctor. You can make these decisions with your medical professional given your set of circumstances. I, I, I got to tell you, I, I watched that State of the Union, and weren't we all amazed how the science on masks and mask mandates changed within 24 hours of the State of the Union? It was absolutely miraculous how the science just lined up, and the idea was that you didn't need a mask mandate before this, and then suddenly they had the State of the Union. I It was absolutely, what a coincidence that is. So there you have Nancy Pelosi Vice President Kamala Harris, you have the President of the United States, and then you have all the members from all over the Congress. They're gathered together, you know, shaking hands, hugging each other, close proximity, no no six-foot distancing rules anymore. But guess what? If you did what I did yesterday, uh, I was in Washington, D.C. for the Fox News Sunday uh, program, and uh, then I got on an airplane. And guess what? I had to mask up. So, you know, hey, don't need it if you're in the United States Congress. Don't need it if you're the president. Don't need it if you're Nancy Pelosi. But, oh, yeah, if you get on an airplane, you better darn well have a mask. And that four-year-old traveling from Atlanta to Los Angeles better mask up. I'm so sick of these mask mandates. And in New York, the Brooklyn Nets, you can't play in the basketball game, but you can go sit next to your teammate and not have to wear a mask. It is absolutely ridiculous. These politicians are just being politicians. It's not right. Time to get rid of the mask mandate. Make decisions yourself with your medical professional. I'm Jason Chaffetz. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade.
Hey, this is Jason Chaffetz. I'm filling in for Brian Kilmeade. I uh, used to serve in the Congress once upon a time, now Fox News contributor, and uh, I live out west. And uh, out west, we deal with a lot of energy products. We actually produce the energy that America make, America consumes and that the world consumes. So we, we, uh, we deal with energy and the development of energy on a regular basis. And thanks for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show because we got a lot to talk about, but... Probably the thing that touches every single American that you're going to feel at one point uh, or another probably this week is going to be at the gas pump. It's affecting inflation. It's affecting it it's, uh, has an effect on your pocketbook. And boy, you start to see how high those prices are gone and how much it takes to fill up your truck or car or whatever you might be driving so I want to bring in uh, somebody I've known for years, one of the smartest minds as it comes to taxes, and that is Grover Norquist. He's the president of Americans for Tax Reform. And Grover, thanks for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Jason, great. Delighted to be with you. No, glad to have you because um, sure enough, true to color, uh, the progressives there in the United States Congress, uh, they want to make a bad situation worse <laughs> because – uh, for all the talk and supposed rhetoric about, oh, we want to help by releasing some of the strategic petroleum reserve to help drive down the cost of gas, that'll help for like six, seven hours, um, but it's really not going to have an effect. But some of the things that these uh, folks that they're trying to do out there from Elizabeth Warren and and uh, Ed Markey and others want to do, it's going to make the situation worse, not better, isn't it? It is. Here's the trap. The point of all of what Biden and the Democrats are doing is to drive up the cost of real energy, natural gas, oil. And therefore, then when you look over at the subsidized energy, wind, which only works when it's windy, and solar, which only works when there's sun, uh, and therefore they're, they, can, they can be part of something, but they can never be it. Uh, and they want to drive up the cost of real energy by taxing it, by constricting supply, uh, by not letting people produce it. or And and then, this, hey, look, solar is not that much more expensive than what, than what we've done to oil and natural gas. So let's do this other thing. Uh, and the challenge is they want higher energy prices. Remember when the Secretary of Energy, the former lady governor of Michigan, was asked, what are you going to do to get prices down? She laughed in the face of the journalist. Because she'd never heard such a ridiculous question. (laughs) Their goal is to raise the cost of energy so people will drive less and fly less. Remember, AOC doesn't think we should fly. And what bothered them is that somehow the American people noticed what they were doing. And the new NBC poll has, what do you think of the president on energy costs, on gas rates? 70-30 against him. Uh, What do you think about inflation? 70-30 against him. Uh, you know, 30 is what Richard Nixon had in the last couple of days of his presidency. Uh, so this is killing them, and they want to talk about anything else. Remember the first one? Businesses are greedy. That's what it is. So during the Trump four years, businesses were not greedy. That was interesting. And as soon as Trump got elected, businesses got greedy and wanted to make money uh, selling oil and natural gas. Well, that that didn't even move the needle. That didn't fool anybody. It's kind of stupid. Uh and now they've got something even stupider. This is Elizabeth Warren, who actually used to be a Republican and used to understand economics. So she went into academics and decided there was a living the other way. You could make $400,000 uh, 
uh, as a professor working a couple hours a week. Uh, free market doesn't offer those <laughs> jobs like that. So she says, we're going to have a windfall profits tax. Well, that's the sort of thing is if somebody had a bunch of oil in their backyard and the price doubled overnight, you'd go, well, he didn't do that. That was, that was a windfall price. People buy oil today and then they sell it next week. The oil prices have been going up this year under uh, Biden. She wants to have a $22 tax per barrel of crude because prices are higher. Well, prices are higher because costs are higher. Exxon's not making you know, a lot of money because of Biden's inflation. And so – she, what her what she would do twenty two dollars tax per barrel would just raise the price of energy for everybody. So yeah. here she goes. We must punish them, and we will make your life miserable. This is not going to be in bill form. They're not going to vote on it. It's it's too stupid for words. It's just to get you to talk about something other than how she and President Biden and the Democrats have been purposely driving up the cost of energy, so that. The peasants will stop driving on their highways. Yeah, the economics is actually accurate. But it is the goal and has been the goal of these greenies to say, hey, look, we want the price of gas and oil to go higher. And they got that. They got it at at record levels, and it's rising really quickly um, because of the other inflationary pressure, because they cut off supplies to be able to develop things you know, there's so many, so many lies that go out there. They really do drive me nuts. But let's remember what uh, what Joe Biden did on day one, right? Day one, got rid of Anwar. Uh, what is it, 19 million acres up there in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge? Mm-hmm. Uh, Nord Stream or the uh, the the Keystone Pipeline. We we've talked about that and uh, shutting that down, and then the inability to develop products. Uh, there on on public lands. Now, I come from a public land state in the state of Utah, but if you look at Wyoming, Nevada, Utah, uh, New Mexico, places like this where we have literally millions of acres that can be developed, it's not just that you have a lease. Then you got to go get permitting. And the other thing that happens, and Grover, I know you know about this, is this, uh, are these environmentally sensitive governance, ESGs, where banks and others are being pushed by the Federal Reserve and others to score how good you are on climate change. And they're afraid to do financing and other things for petroleum-based products for fear of getting a bad score on their ESGs. Well, of course, this is just the left-wing agenda, and they say you should invest in this, not in that. That's right. And governments that want to take over more power, want to run the airwaves. And you saw the Biden administration with his Build Back Better. He was going to subsidize uh, reporters and uh, writers for uh, news stories and so on. So you would have all the press directly on the payroll as opposed to it just seems like they're on the payroll. (laughs) You read their stuff. Uh, They're getting paid. I don't know whether this is a thank you note for helping the president get elected and for all the work they've done for the Democrats in the past, or whether this is a bribe in anticipation of continued uh, good, gentle behavior by reporters who will do what they're told and report what they're told. But they also want to control the capital. They hate that capital, meaning investment, flows to what Americans want. If, if Americans 
want more bread, the money will fly. It will go into making more bread. And if they want, you know, more avocados, people will plant more avocado trees. And Washington doesn't get to tell you how to invest your money in this bank. And so they constantly come up with different rules and games so that they can come. Oh, we think certain neighborhoods should have investment. And we want you to do this. They want to control the flow of capital because that's central to government control of the economy and people's lives. And our answer should be no. This is just one more trick about how to have the government say, before you make that loan, let's just take a look at that. Yeah, this is, look, we're talking with Grover Norquist. He's the president of Americans for Tax Reform. And and Grover, part of what's happening here is uh, there's trying to be some revisionist history and trying to spin this as only the White House can spin this. I want you to listen. This is last Wednesday. This is Jen Psaki talking about the broad problem of inflation. And look at how she kind of weaves in the idea of gas and gas prices and what was really causing the gas prices to go up even before, uh, by the way, Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. Uh, Jen Psaki from last week. We don't have the data at this point yet, but as we're looking ahead, we certainly assess that um, that we expect to see a high headline uh, in head, headline inflation in tomorrow's February inflation data. A key reason, as you touched on, are energy prices. We've seen the price of gas increase, as I noted, 75 cents since the beginning of the year as Putin built up his military near Ukraine and took increasingly aggressive measures that were felt in the markets. Yeah. It was because Putin was in, you know, building up his forces on the border of Ukraine that suddenly American energy prices started to 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 jump at record levels. Uh, they really want to blame everybody but themselves. We, we we talked earlier. They want to blame American businessmen when the government prints money and makes it worth less. So to buy the same thing costs two dollars instead of a buck fifty. Um, that's not the fault of the business guy who made the widget. That's the fault of the people who printed too much money, who spent too much and had too much debt in the government. Uh, and governments always like, oh, we need to have wage and price controls. That'll, that'll stop prices from going up. They're going up because of the printing of the money, not because of anything else. Governments, they, they do not take responsibility for failure very well. And Biden's had a series from the exit from Kabul, from not dissuading the Soviet Union from invading uh, Ukraine to telling the Germans it's okay if they have a pipeline from Russia that goes around Ukraine. Why did you know they could now invade Ukraine? Because now they've got a pipeline that goes around Ukraine. Without that, the Russians couldn't have done this invasion, and Biden made it easy. Yeah, there, there's so many factors here. The, the, the fundamental principle, I think, should be that America should be energy independent and that should be in a position to be able to export those energy products to backfill what Europe needs. But when those when that goes away and America can't provide an alternative energy source, um, alternative, and I mean in terms of getting it from Russia, guess what? Then they're beholden to Russia, and Russia knows it. And by the way, the rapid rise in the price of a barrel of gasoline only goes to empower a, a Russia and it goes to empower Iran. That's how they. That's how these uh, these countries feel their future. It's what I call Russian blood oil. That's what it is. Remember when they had diamonds and they said, "Hey, let's not buy any blood diamonds because they're using child labor, slave labor." Well, you go out and buy Russian oil. Guess what? You're fueling the fight in Ukraine for Russia. Yeah, it, 
This is a disastrous presidency, and the failure on economics, the inflation, the spending too much money, the paying people not to work, all of these have made us weaker, and that includes an international level. When we're not producing enough energy for America and Europe, we provided the oil for the whole world during World War II, um, and that allowed us to win World War II. The people who want to restrict America's capacity to produce energy at a reasonable cost. And I mean the real cost. I mean, that's how, oh, this is a cost of, of wind or solar. No, there's a subsidy there. The real cost is what you charge plus what you take from us in taxes and pretend we're not spending on your subsidized fake real energy. Uh, I, so this, I, this is a challenge. Grover, I've only got about 45 seconds here. But what's your, yeah. take, what's your take on these, on these states that want to have a temporary suspension of their, their local gas tax? Uh, it's ridiculous. It doesn't solve the problem. Um, they should they should work to make it easier for people to produce energy. That brings the cost down. It does. It does. It does bring the cost down. And look, um, we've got to rethink in this country how we fund roads, bridges, and infrastructure. There is a better, smarter way to do that. But that will have to stay for another day, Grover. I hate to tease you with that. We've been talking with Grover Norquist. He's the president of Americans for Tax Reform and uh, an exceptionally bright mind on all things taxes. So thanks so much for joining us on The Brian Kilmeade Show. We'll be back right after this. Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Are you guys just going to start blaming Putin for everything until the midterms? Well, we've seen the price of gas go up at least 75 cents since President Putin lines up troops on the border of Ukraine. And, and last month, the statement didn't mention the Putin price hike. It mentioned inflation because of the pandemic. Why is that? Well, Peter, last year, last two years, there was a pan- global pandemic. Everyone who's a global economist have all agreed that that has been the biggest contributor to date of inflation because of the impact on the supply chain. Obviously, global events impact the economy, the global economy, as well as global inflation. And the uh, price hikes as a result that have escalated over the course of time of President Putin's further invasion of uh, the impact on the global oil markets are, of course, having an impact. Well, that's uh, Jen Psaki uh, talking and bantering back and forth with Fox News' Peter Ducey uh, over what is the true cause of inflation. Let's go back to Milton Friedman. Let's go back to the economists who uh, understand that the definition of inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. And it is the Federal Reserve and the federal government that will dictate the supply of money in the marketplace. Let's understand that the massive run-up in spending is by the trillions of dollars injected into the economy such that now almost 25 cents out of every dollar spent in this country is spent by your federal government. Now, think about how stunning that number is. A lot of people believe that that number should be maybe 19, even 20% of our GDP, our gross domestic product. Uh, But when you start to get it up in the 25% range, when you accumulate a national debt that is 30 
trillion dollars. And remember, if you spend a million dollars a day every day, it takes you nearly 3,000 years to get the one trillion. And when you have $30 trillion in debt and the interest rate is near zero, guess what? Ah, uh, then you know what happens. You have to spend a billion dollars a day in interest payments. We get nothing for that. But that money's got to be out there and got to be spent and injected back into these uh, institutions or those that, that lent the money. Much of that is going overseas. Um, and it, you also simultaneously cut off the supply levels, not just immediately, but into the, the future, the markets will look at this and say, mm, there's more money, but there's less supply. What happens when there's less supply? Guess what? The prices are going to go up because there is that demand, this insatiable demand by the federal government to go out and spend so much money. Now, the economy was doing quite well under Donald Trump. It was zooming along. If he just did nothing, it would have taken care of itself and we would have had this continued prosperity. But to continue to try to say, well, it was the buildup of troops on the border of Ukraine that started to drive up the rapid f- the flow of, of energy. No. Maybe it had something to do with you cut off Anwar, you cut off the Keystone Pipeline. Maybe it had to do with the curbing of development of energy products on federal lands. And you have a Green New Deal agenda that is going to try to fundamentally change the economy and get us going into directions that we haven't gone before. Nothing wrong with doing part of that, but don't do it at the exclusion of things that were already working. That's my take on it. I'm Jason Chaffetz filling in for Brian Kilmeade. Stay with us. We've got General Keith Kellogg coming up next. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. What is happening in Ukraine today will happen in Europe tomorrow. In order to prevent it, everyone should fight. For themselves, fight here in whatever way they can. That is uh, President Zelensky um, predicting what's going to happen and getting people trying to, to rally the world to, to his support as Russia continues its march and its destruction and all-out attack there on Ukraine. We're pleased to have, I'm Jason Chaffetz, by the way, filling in for Brian Kilmeade, but we're pleased to have retired Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, a Fox News contributor, former National Security Advisor to Vice President Pence, former Chief of Staff to of the National Security Council in the Trump administration, and author of a book called War by Other Means, a general in the Trump White House. Um, General Kellogg, thank you so much for joining us on the Kill Me Show. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. Uh, good to be with you. No, I really do appreciate it because uh, the Ukrainians are, are taking um, they're taking the brunt of it. And, uh, boy, by, by what's your take of it? Because sitting here on the sidelines, um, I, you know, it seemed like at the beginning of this war that uh, Putin had the military capability with uh, 100 plus thousand troops in the military might of Russia. They could just march right into Kiev, but that's not the way it's gone down. 
Yeah, Jason, you know, here's what's interesting to watch, because all of us thought this would be over pretty quickly. In fact, General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said that, uh, you know, the Russians would take Kiev within three days. Well, now we're, you know, 16 days, 16 to 17. And I think what happened, they initially tried to fight like the Russians normally fight. They used their air assault units, their what they call their... VDV, their airborne forces, tried to take an airport right outside of Kiev, smashed their way in, and they got hammered. Uh, they, they lost it. And I don't think Vladimir Putin had a plan B. And now he's trying to figure out what his plan B is. And Ukrainians are fighting incredibly courageously, incredibly well, but they're also led by a very charismatic leader who a lot of people thought would run. And, and move somewhere other than Kiev. Instead, he looked at Putin and he said, you know, when you come, you're not going to see our back, you're going to see our face. And and that counts for a lot. You know, there's an old Napoleonic saying that the morale to the physical is three is to one. And what it means by that is when you've got a, a, you know, a force that fights really well, um, it, and it counts for a lot of, of uh, ability that – that maybe the other side has, and the Russians are coming in with about an eight to one advantage. You know, my dad told me years ago, you know, it's, it's not the size of the dog in the fight that counts; it's the size of fighting the dog. And yeah. and I think it's it's true. So he's having enormous problems, and now he's kind of stuck. And if if this was a prize fight, right now the points uh, Ukraine's ahead on points, and I'm my concern is what does. Putin do next because if he stalls out with the enormity of, of the forces he's got, uh, he's going to have to do something. And it, the tell is this, and and I was watching this over the weekend and said, oh boy, this is interesting. If the Russians have to say, I want to bring in Syrian fighters, that's tell number one. And tell number two is if he goes to to, to China and he says. Uh, I need some military support. That's telling me he's got some real problems, either in command and control or the fighting ability or the, or the numbers he's got, because he's currently in the, the area he's at in Ukraine right now. That is predominantly Russian-speaking, not Russian-supporting, but speaking. We, when you move to the west, on the on the western side of the Dnieper River, that drops to about 10%. So now you're in truly, as they say in the business, you're in Indian territory. And I think he's got a problem. I, you know, he, I don't know if he can close the deal. If he doesn't close the deal, I'd double up my bodyguard if I was Vladimir Putin. Interesting uh, take on that. You know, there is uh, on Fox News Sunday, the Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, said that Russia appears to be serious about potential negotiations. But then you have uh, Congressman Michael Waltz, uh, Green Beret, who's serving. He was on the Next Revolution last night on Fox News, and he doesn't think he's serious about negotiations. Let's listen to clip five, Congressman Michael Waltz. I don't think Putin has ever been serious about negotiations. At this point, his grip on power depends on victory here. Uh, I do think Zelensky has made somewhat of a concession in saying he's rethinking NATO, but that's not enough for Putin. Uh, he wants at least uh, the Black Sea, Kyiv, a change in government and the eastern part of Ukraine at a minimum, and he is, he is all in. What we need to be doing is to quit dithering and wringing our hands, provide him the MiGs, provide him the S-300 Russian uh, uh, air defense systems, uh, and provide him a lot more arms than what we're doing. Uh, General yeah. Kellogg, what's your take on what Congressman Walt said there? I, I think Mike was right on the money. Look, if I was if I was Ukrainians, I would say before you start to negotiate with the Russians, read a book on the Hungarian Revolution of 1956. 
when the Hungarians, who were actually doing quite well and actually held on to Budapest, the Russians brought them in for negotiations and killed them all. You know, I said, I wouldn't negotiate with the Russians. I think the Ukrainians are doing fine. I think uh, Congressman Waltz was right. Uh, there's a there's a big concern about it, and and I wouldn't you know I trust the Russians as far as I throw the Empire State Building, which isn't very far, and I think they're doing quite well. And I think uh, if it, the way the pressure is going, and the more it's, it's building on Putin, it's not building on Zelensky, because Zelensky's still got two thirds of his country pretty well intact. His forces in the in the far uh, eastern part of the country are doing quite well. All things considered, um, you know, Russians are just winning by sheer numbers, but they're they're not having an easy day of it. So I think Congressman Waltz was right, I, and I, th- I think we can apply pressures from the West and help them have a, a you know a fighting start on this. And I think the ramifications of this, Jason, are, are stunning because if if they fail in this, and they're, and they're already failing, what does this say to the rest of the world? What does that say about the Russian military? You know, the vaunted Russian military. I mean, they're not. They, he's committed almost. Uh, Two hundred thousand of his troops, and these aren't these weren't slugs. These were the top troops he's got. He's thrown his best people at it, and he's having problems. So this is going to be kind of interesting to watch. I'd give him all the support we could. I'd, you know, I'd give him the best rocks, you know, slings, shots, anything that we need, we'd give it to him, uh, and, and let him fight it out because I think they're doing quite well. You know, it's uh, I think one of the lessons to be learned, and one of the more recent things in history is is uh and when we talk about negotiating with putin is what he did in georgia when they went in and took 25 percent of that country then they signed documents saying that they were going to withdraw and then they never withdrew i mean i went to an observation point while i was in congress there with the uh european union to look at how they're fortifying those those places still to this day in georgia as opposed to withdrawing despite a document that was signed saying oh just give us a little bit of time and then we'll pull out of georgia they never did yeah well it's like they're saying if you trust the russians i've got a bridge in brooklyn i'll sell you yeah and i wouldn't (laughs) trust them at all you know because it's uh they're not going to do that He's, he's you know he's trying to set conditions and he was trying to take the whole country and he's trying now and I think his fallback is to have an east and west Ukraine sort of like the old east and west Germany and Putin, and I think Zelensky is right fight it out and the longer this goes the worse it is for Putin because it shows his vulnerabilities and and I and I'm serious I if I was Putin right about now I'd start thinking about doubling up my bodyguards because uh you know the, he's he's already arrested people in his FSB his intelligence services uh, his military probably isn't real happy what's going on because it's showing how weak they are. We can run in command and control and how they fight. Because what's causing them problems isn't mass. It's their ability, in other words, putting stuff on the battlefield. Their ability is they just don't know how to command and control it. And it's really – I think I don't think you can find a middle military analyst right now that would complement anything the Russians are doing militarily in Ukraine. Interesting. What what's your take on the kind of the broadening of the target target set? Uh, let's get let's listen to clip six. This is John Kirby, the Pentagon uh, press secretary, talking about what Russia's doing. 
We certainly noticed uh, that these strikes were conducted uh, overnight, uh, early early morning hours there, uh, overnight here. Uh, we do know that there was some damage to the training facility, uh, and uh, we're still assessing and, and, and talking to Ukrainians about what else they've seen here. Look, this is the third now military facility or airfield that the Russians have struck in western Ukraine in just the last couple of days. So clearly, at least from an airstrike perspective, uh, they're broadening their target sets. Well, yeah. what, what should we read from that? Well, what he's trying to do, he, he I think he understands his concern is bringing in um, other assets into those airfields. And I think what he's trying to do is deny those airfields to bring in humanitarian support or any kind of support. Uh, I, you know, I think very candidly, I think we were a little bit, we the West, were a little bit behind on supporting um the Ukrainians on what they may have needed in the, to protect those airfields, like air defense systems, or, or like for example, you know, you could have used the S-300 system, which is in NATO and it's a Russian system, bring it in and and protect those airfields, give it to them, and others you know, say, you know, free gratis here, you own this stuff. But I think what Putin is worried about is just reinforcing those airfields, and he's trying to eliminate the air at the air. Uh, Ukrainian Air Force, which is still flying at about two-thirds of its original uh, force structure, is trying to re- eliminate that, and he's also trying to eliminate abilities to bring in supplies. But he doesn't control the roads. So, the, I mean, he's done that, but he's still got a problem uh, of denying them battle space to resupply or bring things in. So it's, a, it's an understandable reach for what he was trying to do. It's militarily, I see what he's doing. But the, the, you know the gain on that is not real high. So I kind of said, oh, "Okay, good. You hit the airfields. You you can repair a runway in about six hours. So no big deal." So At General concerned about it. General Jack Keane, you know, is uh, associated with Fox News. He was on the Next Revolution last night. He believes that part of the uh, the the challenge here is the fear of consequence by the American presidents. Let's let's listen to uh, clip thirteen. The same thing, Steve, that happened with the Obama administration. They get paralyzed by the fear of adverse consequence. And in this case, it's escalation. And that is a fearsome term to them. Instead of meeting that and and doing what we should be doing to assist the Ukrainians, being all in should be what we're doing. And we should not let Putin drive escalation. What's your take on uh, General Keene's... He's just—he's one hundred percent right. Look, we can—we were a little bit late to the game on supplying Ukrainians with what they probably needed, but it's right. You know, I don't know why we're reacting to to the Russians when we should be forcing them to react. Here, let me give you an example. You know, when the Russians brought up their special combat readiness of raising their nuclear forces. Uh, to a level, you know, that, and everybody kind of shuddered about that. Well, we have what's called a de- defense condition, one through five, where it, that's where you raise your levels on a nuclear threshold. We currently operate at a four. During 9-11, we took it to a three. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, we took it to a two. You know, we're, we should probably, what if we just said, no, really? Well, you, we're going to raise you by one. We're going to go to DEFCON three. And that would have sent a signal, too. Instead of saying, instead of canceling like we did, a, a test of a nuclear – no, I'm sorry, a test of an ICBM system, which is a routine test, we canceled that for fear of sending the wrong message. I would have reversed that. No, we want to send them a message. We want to, It's like – remember when 
uh, Kim Jong-un told President Trump, you know, he's got a red button, and Trump replied back, yeah, I've got a red button, and mine's bigger than yours. That's yeah. what we should have done. <laughs> and and that's how you handle this guy. You don't – and I think that's what General Keene's getting about. He's absolutely right. You don't – you know, you don't wring your hands in a negative manner. You basically go all in with this guy. Like I tell him, look, look Russia, you're a nuclear power. Got it. By the way, we have three nuclear powers. We've got the United States, the Brits, and the French on our team. You want to go that way? And I think the Chinese will sit this one out because I think they're getting a little bit embarrassed by it. And uh, and when when Putin's reaching out to the Chinese for help, I think the Chinese are saying, no, you're on your own, buddy. Um, I, I just think – you know, I just think the Ukrainians right now are head on points. I hope they pull it off. I think we supply them as much equipment as we can. Uh, we make them an unsinkable aircraft carrier. We should have done that months ago. When he started building up in December and November, he, the, the Russians, we should have been matching that every step along the way instead of waiting until right at the end. You know, we didn't even give them stingers, the air defense system, till this fight had actually started, which is it's incredible to me that we didn't think about that You know, four months ago, five months ago. We should have given them that a long time earlier. Yeah, it's a, it, missiles. It, it does seem just – as somebody who has not been in the military, that we should have been giving their defensive weapons, the stingers, the, uh, the the javelins, those types of things in advance of it so that they gave, had something to think about. And why they didn't put sanctions, really, really stringent sanctions in place before the attack, that's – I mean, you even heard President Zelensky talk about that as well. So, yeah. uh, listen, uh, Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, uh, retired, now a Fox News contributor, former National Security Advisor to Vice President Pence, former Chief of Staff to the National Security Council in the Trump administration, and author of – the book is War by Other Means, a general in the Trump White House. General Kellogg, thank you so much for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. We do appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. Thank you again, and stay with us. The Brian Kilmeade Show will continue after this. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Michael Jordan, he came back. Muhammad Ali came back. Mike Tyson came back. Would you ever consider that? You know, I'm just going to take things as they come. I think that's the best way to put it. You know, you never say never. You know, at the same time, I know that I'm very, I feel very good about my decision. So, you know, I try to make the best possible decision I can in the moment, which I did this last week. And again, I think it's not looking to, you know, reverse course. I'm definitely not looking to do that. Yeah, well, he did. So a month later, the GOAT, Tom Brady, back in the game, deciding that he's going to rejoin the NFL saying he's got a little bit of left. He's got some uh, unfinished business there on the field. And you know what? It's just going to make that much more, that much more entertaining. The guy is absolutely uh, uh, amazing. And by the way, I saw um, on an airplane, American underdog, the story of Kurt Warner. If you haven't seen that movie, can I just personally tell you, I think that is a great American story and I hope a lot of Americans get to see it. I, I don't think there's really any swearing and other types of things in there, but it's just a great movie. There's some really good good people involved. You know, we hear about all the garbage and all the stuff that's going on and the people who can't stand for the national anthem and things like that. But then you have some really good people like a Kurt Warner and, and a Tom Brady who make the, the game fun and enjoyable. Um, I, 
two other things I want to touch base as we kind of wrap up. It's also my wife's birthday. Talk about the GOAT, the greatest of all time, my wife, Julie. Happy birthday to her, and um, she's just the greatest thing that ever happened in my life, and and she's got a birthday today, so i got to give a shout-out to her. And the other thing that I wanted to mention, along with sports, since we were talking football, is March Madness. The Madness starts tomorrow. I hope you can be involved and engaged in it. Spoiler alert, I hate to tell you who's going to win, but the reality is it's Gonzaga. Gonzaga is going to go all the way. I think they're going to take it this year. Um, an amazing program year after year after year. And uh, I think there's a reason why they're they're ranked number one because I think they're actually going to pull it off. But you know what? Root for your team. Enjoy it. Watch those Cinderella stories. Fill out a bracket. You're going to be much more involved and engaged in it. You don't have to put money down on it. But, uh, you know, if you do, uh, you do. But if you don't, you still look at and see who in the family can get the, the, the best bracket out there. But I'm going with Gonzaga. I love March Madness. College sports is still one of the best things out there. This has been the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm Jason Chaffetz, honored to fill in for Brian Kilmeade. Thanks for letting me sit in the seat, Brian. He'll be back before you know it. This has been the Brian Kilmeade Show. Have a great day. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.